HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for this hour of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, our guests introduce us to the multifaceted world of cider making. We will first visit with John Behrens, president of the Michigan Cider Association, who will provide us with a primer on the Midwestern cider scene. Then Deidre Birmingham, the woman behind the cider farm in Wisconsin. She will tell us all about her orchard-to-glass approach to cider making. And finally, we will meet Walter Fanning, a young cider maker also from Wisconsin, whose experimentation with infused flavors has made the cider at Hidden Cave Cidery a standout in the region. Now we welcome our first guest, John Behrens, president of the Michigan Cider Association. John, we're excited to have you on Eat Your Heartland Out. Thanks for joining us. Excited to be here. So you're the president of the Michigan Cider Association, um, and I believe you also represent the Midwest uh, in the National Association uh, for Cider Makers. Um, So you'd be very, um, I think, um, qualified to tell our audience what trends you're seeing in the cider industry, both within the the Midwest region uh, as well as nationally. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of exciting things. It's It's been an exciting time for cider for a while now, and we're seeing kind of the continuation of that um, and almost the the increasing speed at which some of those, those trends are coming to fruition. Um, but a lot of different diversification and diversity within cider, uh, I'd say, is probably one of the, the biggest things we're seeing. Um, oftentimes people say cider is kind of where craft beer was like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you're your average bar, your average grocery store had maybe a craft beer option available. Um, and it really wasn't until you started to see those different flavor profiles and, and different ingredients being used in cider, I mean, in beer at that time, um, where it was kind of like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not a stout person, but I'm, I'm into <laughs> IPAs. Um, that's right. the same sort of thing we're starting to see across the categories within cider. That's interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, you are from Michigan, and so you have a good sense of, you know, what makes Midwest cider, um, you know, different and special um, from other regions. Uh, it, what what makes the Midwestern cider different maybe than, you know, for example, I've been in Vermont and visited the Woodchuck, uh, you know, cider 
factory, for lack of a better term, and enjoyed some of their different ciders. Um, you know, so what would make a, a Midwestern cider unique and different than, say, you know, the ones that I experienced up in Vermont? Yeah, there's certainly a, a regionality component to cider. You know, all cider is, is great cider, and it's I like to make the comparison to wine. Um, from a licensing standpoint, in many states, cider is considered a wine, being an alcohol derived from fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a terroir that um, is only really recently beginning to kind of be understood, especially by the consumer, um, as it relates to apples. You know, as when we make the comparison to wine, different different grapes obviously lead to different types of wines. The same grapes grown in different regions even lead to to different types of wines many times. Um, and we're seeing the same thing is true in apples. Mm-hmm. Um, the Midwest is a very large uh, grower of apples. Um, you think of apples and you kind of have really three main regions. You've got the Pacific Northwest, you've got the Midwest, and then you've got the Northeast. Um, some of the things that make uh, the, the Midwest ciders really so special and, and so unique and so delicious is um, the apples that we that we grow here. There's a lot more of a, a tannin component that people mm-hmm. often pick up on on apples that are coming from the Midwest. Um, there's a little bit of a more complexity. It's not to say that, you know, ciders made anywhere else aren't as good. They're different in their own ways. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of that. We're fortunate that um, we're starting with great apples. And that's kind of step one as it comes when it comes to making cider. Well, you know, we, uh, we've talked, I've talked to so many different folks in, in the process of putting together this episode focused on cider, uh, cider production in the Midwest. And we've all had conversations about apples, apple orchards, you know, um, sourcing appropriate apple variations, uh, choosing apples and as you said, kind of in the same way as you're looking at grapes. So if you're making wine, no one has talked about pears. And I think of this right now simply because I, you know, going through my Rolodex of memories of, of when I was in Vermont and, and tasting cider, and I remember having pear cider there. Um, you know, is pear cider something that is available or made um, in these different regions? Um, is it something that you can get in the Midwest, or is it really something that is maybe, for example, um, I know that pears are, are a big thing in Oregon. Is it something that maybe um, not available in the Midwest because people aren't growing as many pears. Yeah, so there's um, there are pear ciders. There's kind of two different things here. There's if you're making something you know more exclusively from pears, it's often referred to as perry. Um, but if there's also pear cider, um, which is you know an apple and pear combination, uh-huh. it's something definitely within the the Midwest that you you can find. Um, I'd say it's something you have to seek out more so than you're going to, you're not likely to just stumble on it at your local kind of major grocery store. Right. Um, and I think a lot of that's just, it sort of pears versus apples in terms of, you know, any other sense, apples are, are more prevalent. Um, and so as a result, ciders um, are more prevalent than than perry. But it's something that is, it is popular in, in small circles. Um, it's got its own unique flavor profile. Yeah. Um, obviously lots of history around pears as well and different types of pears. So a lot of interesting flavors, but yeah, it's certainly, certainly less prevalent, um, at least within the Midwest, uh, versus straight up apple ciders. Any place that, that focuses on pears more? I mean, is there, I don't know, I mean, since you're on the National Association and, and, you know, sort of in the Midwest region representing, um, you know, the region for the, for the National Association, do you see any specific states that, may use pears more often than, than others, even though apples are, are more prevalent, as you say, in the Midwest? Yeah. I'm, there, within the Midwest, there isn't a, a specific state that I would go to. Um, I've had some great, great uh, pear ciders and some great perries um, from a few, few places within the Midwest. But again, it's something they're kind of, you kind of have to seek out. Um, there's there are. I'm aware of some places, like in the Pacific Northwest, that are some very, um, very small, very craft producers that focus more so on pear-based products than they do on apples. But I'm not aware of any places in the Midwest that are doing more pear than they are apple. Interesting. I and I'm sorry to have gone down a, a pear rabbit hole, but it did. <laughs> this conversation did provoke that memory, and and it occurred to me we hadn't really talked about it with anyone else. So I'm glad that you at least um, 
had a little bit of insight that you could share with us. Yeah, and they're very related, even from a licensing, from a taxation uh-huh. standpoint. You know, cider and perry are, are very similar. I definitely got to keep my eye on this because I've never heard pear cider or pear. How do you pronounce it again? Perry? Perry. I, I've never heard that term before, so I've learned something new today. Every time I talk to somebody on this show, every guest I have, you are, you're all so incredible, and I learn something every time I talk to somebody new, and so I know that my audience is as well. So, Perry, Excellent. ladies and gentlemen in the listening audience, uh, if you're looking for a pear cider, um, it may not be actually pear cider, which is apparently pear and apple. Perry is its own thing involving pears, so... Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk uh, uh, more specifically about Michigan, since that's where you're from, and your personal experience as well, um, getting involved in making cider. Um, everybody has their own kind of journey into uh, making cider or making wine, and, and I know that you have a unique story as well. Yeah, it's uh, for something, for me, it started out as a, as a hobby um, several years ago. Uh, you know, it's something, be, do, it start, do it starting with friends. Um, you know, originally we're making beer and cider. Um, you know, with beer, I, I love beer as much as, as the next person, but it was like, well, this is kind of, felt kind of silly after a while because I can, you know, walk a block either direction and, and buy nearly any style of beer imaginable. Um, and you contrast that with cider where um, we really weren't even starting to see the diversification of cider at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was more fun to kind of explore things that you couldn't just go to the store and buy. And how, how long ago was this? This was um, at least a decade ago at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and so it, it kind of, it found that we were shifting as a, as a group of friends, shifting our attention more towards cider and, and less towards beer. Um, and it started to, started to kind of spread from there um, where you've cut, you know, you're, oh, a friend tries it, really likes it. You know, can you make me some of that? And then it's friends of friends and someone's getting married. Can you make us a, a keg? And before long, awesome. it's like, this is something we needed to kind of make make a real thing. And even at that point, it was still intended to be a hobby after going and getting our licensing and um, had purchased this uh, farm that's been in my family for over 150 years now, ever since oh, my wow. great-great-grandparents came over from Germany 150 years ago. Um, and was kind of had had the idea at that point, saw these these two paths coming together. Um, property was originally an orchard, had been abandoned for over a decade. Um, how could we, you know, take something that we're we love making, people seem to enjoy, how can we take that um, and use that as a means to kind of uh, bring this farm back to life, bring this property back to life and and share it with as many people as possible. And that was about six years ago now from kind of the initial uh, kind of real commercialization and, and having a real product to, to sell to complete strangers. <laughs> so you said that the, the farm uh, basically was, was an orchard at one point and was abandoned. So did you have to start from scratch and, and regrow trees? And, you know, did you get into grafting, you know, certain varieties? Or did you, were you able to salvage what was there? Uh, kind of a combination of both. Um, and we are working um, with other local orchards as well because mm-hmm. um, we're fortunate being where we are in Michigan. They're within, you know, 10 miles of us. It's 70% of the apples in, in the state are grown and Michigan's That's convenient. the largest grower. Yeah. <laughs> you can um, make cider. <laughs> exactly. But there are uh, some descendant trees uh, from the original trees that are there that we've certainly done some small batch kinds of ciders with. We've planted um, some new trees. Um, for some of our, our specialty things as well. So kind of a combination, and it's it's been a, an eye-opening and interesting experience for sure. I I bet, I can imagine. And, you know, again, every time I talk to somebody, I'm like, this would be so fun. It would be such a great adventure. And then I realize there's a lot of very detailed, uh, you know, sweat equity, as my grandfather would say, one way, shape, or form, uh, to get something like this up and running. It sounds like such a, a wonderful you know, thing to do to get your, you know, to have a plot of land, to be able to plant something, to be able to have this value-added product uh, that you can share with the world. But then you remember there's like licensure and training and, you know, you have to deal with the weather. There's all these things. And so, you know, those of us who are consuming your products are very thankful that you are willing to put that sweat equity in, that's for sure. 
Yes, well, I appreciate that. There's definitely, it's got a, a glamorous side to it that I think people think of first, but there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears behind the scenes to to kind of make everything a reality. But yeah, we went we went deep kind of with our research and things. I'd actually even taken a trip over to Germany to visit some orchards there. Oh, wow. Kind of try to understand, you know, these are the types of ciders that were being made at the time. Um, cider had been made on this property before, but just for personal consumption. But trying to kind of make some ciders based off of that history and, and family legacy as well. So it's definitely fun, but yeah, share share some frustrations as well. Sure. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's a, a passion that is, you know, somehow rooted in your DNA. Um, so cool. Um, love to hear, you know, these unique stories. Um, and, you know, let's turn actually from, you know, sort of making the cider um, to, you know, Using the the cider in a way to attract people into a region, I love to talk about the tourism element of of you know food and drink and in the culinary space. And I know that um, cider is no different. We often think about you know wine tours or winery tours or brewery tours, but cider is picking up in that in that way as well. Um, is that what you're seeing in Michigan? Absolutely, cider is is really a, a leader in this sense. Um, it's it's more of an agricultural product, um, at least in Michigan, than than really any of the other craft beverages um, that are it's often compared against. Sure, Most that makes cideries, sense. Yeah, throughout the Midwest and and I know in Michigan in particular, it, it is nearly exclusively Midwest grown, Michigan grown fruit that's being used to produce each of these products, and that's not always the case um, mm-hmm. in some other great beverages as well. But there's that lends itself um, to the the tourism piece that you mentioned. Um, you know, we see we certainly see urban cideries. You know that that aren't located on orchards, and cider tastes just as as good in those locations. Um, but you you get diversity there as well, and that you can also go to an orchard and see the apples growing and taste the prior year's crop. You know, while you're staring at the the current year's crop, and that product mm-hmm. has never left that plot of land. You know, from the time it it grew on the tree till you're drinking it out of the glass and it's really got a, a great story and a great feel for people that can kind of see the whole process. That's awesome. And, and I find that, you know, very attractive. Um, I think I always like to know how things work. Um, and, and I know a lot of people do as well. So to, to be able to see that entire sort of, uh, lifespan, if you will, from the, the tree to the glass, I, I'm sure is very interesting to, to visitors. Uh, and I know that a lot of, um, you know, every, I feel like, a lot of states now uh, and a lot of uh, trade associations are putting together these maps where you can, you know, drive around and, and find, you know, whether it's a brewery or in this case, a cidery or, you know, whatever. Um, is that, um, you know, a trend on the horizon for the cider industry nationwide? Are you seeing that, uh, you know, kind of emerge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at both a national level and at a, a regional and, and state level. Um we've we've got options available for people and it's it's a a great community of people amongst cider producers cider cider companies you know for the most part everyone gets along very very well so um i know speaking for ourselves we keep a a stack of maps handy for for anyone that that comes in and shows interest to kind of you know here's some other places around to make sure you check out try this cider at this place Um, ask this person about that thing Um, because it's really it takes all of us to to kind of grow the industry and and get it to to where we feel that it's headed. No question about that. And and I'm seeing that theme uh, again across so many um, communities in the Midwest that you really, you know, do band together as a family to lift all boats and and to, you know, if one, you know, farm, uh, you know, tour or winery or whatever is bringing in, you know, visitors, everybody wants to try to share in that and collectively, um, you know, be able to attract to a region and share their, share their bounty, share, share their talents, um, with, um, neighbors near and far. Um, before I let you go, um, I do want to ask, what do you think is, uh, in the next frontier for cider that we haven't covered? I really think it's an extension on this, this diversification, um, you know, we see uh, healthy alcohol is kind of a, a trend overall, um, you know, with seltzers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, cider being derived exclusively from fruit, uh, it sort of feels like the consumer is is just starting to kind of make that, that connection of if you want to 
talk about, you know, whole ingredients, you know what, what you're consuming, um, whether it's something that you're eating or in this case, something that you're drinking. Cider really checks a lot more boxes um, than I think people as a whole have started to really realize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, local ingredients, we talked about that, supporting agriculture, right. supporting your community. Um, and then as you layer in the different types of cider that are becoming more widely available, you know, we've we've seen sour ciders if you're into wild fermented things. We see dry hop ciders if you're coming from a beer background. We see single varietal ciders if you're more of a wine drinker. Um, cider cocktails if you're more into to spirits. So there really is something for everyone. Um, and I really think the the average person is just starting to kind of put two and two together and kind of awaken to the, the true possibility of the diversity of cider. What a great note to end on, John. Thank you so much. Something for everyone in cider. I love cider and I know many others do too. So we'll keep our eye peeled on, on all these new uh, emerging types of ciders. And we appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. We will be right back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Casella's Prosciutto Speciale is made in America following the time-tested traditions of Italy's Norcini, the itinerant butchers who traveled the countryside preparing, seasoning, and aging meat. Just like those dedicated artisans of old, Casella's Prosciutto starts with the highest quality ingredients. They exclusively use rare breed heritage pigs, including Duroc, Tamworth, Berkshire, and Large Black, which are pasture raised by small family farmers across the U.S. Their slow on the bone curing process follows the standards of the Italian Prosciutto Consortia and produces consistently gorgeous results. Casella's Prosciutto is elegant. It is marbled, delicate, and nutty. They value that each ham is unique from the next, showcasing the subtle difference between breeds, farms, sizes, and pigs. Casella's believes in the quality of ingredients, good pork, salt, and thyme. It's that simple. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We are now joined by Deidre Birmingham from The Cider Farm in Wisconsin. Deirdre, thank you for joining the show today, which is all about cider, something that you know quite a bit about, but you didn't actually start your career off in agriculture or cider. How did you make your way from your original career to where you're at today? Yes. Well, um, actually, I did start studying agriculture in college uh, during my sophomore year. Um, I've been working with horses since I was nine years old and couldn't see life apart from a horse. So when I went off to the university, I was intent on studying um, or getting the background I would need to apply to the College of Veterinary Medicine to be an equine practitioner. But and agriculture classes were a good background for that. And so I enrolled in the College of Ag my sophomore year, but got to liking the classes in uh, in agriculture that I was taking. I also learned I could live apart from a horse. <laughs> My horse was sold. And uh, <laughs> I also got interested in uh, global hunger and poverty issues. So I, I launched in that direction and uh, was working uh, overseas, primarily in Africa, and uh, did two uh, graduate degrees where my research was in, um, was in West Africa. And when I was in grad school mm-hmm. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, I met John, who later became my husband. And in that process, he asked me if having these degrees in agriculture, but working in Africa, if I had ever thought about having a farm. And I said, hmm, no, <laughs> I have never thought about having a farm myself. There's no farmland in the family. <laughs> uh, I found myself born in Chicago and raised in a northern suburb, so um, I had never really thought about it. But he had a file of farm ideas, so that kind of clinched the deal. Uh, we decided we wanted to do a farm-based business together. And then finally, in 2002, when work took us, uh, his work took us back to Wisconsin, uh, I started in earnest looking for farmland. 
And we did find a uh, naturally pretty landscape. Um, it wasn't uh, being hadn't been lived on for uh, almost 50 years. And um, we hadn't yet decided what we were going to do for our farm-based business. We just knew we would do things organically and that we would uh, produce some high-quality uh, product. So like a finished product or a value-added product. So mm -hmm. uh, we bought this land, um, thought about several enterprises. There were wild apple trees everywhere. Um, and I had found myself reading on the ins and outs of ciders or hard ciders, as they've come to be known in the U.S. Um, and uh, so we decided uh, that's something we would like to do. We would grow apples organically for the purposes of making ciders. Um, and so in that process, we learned that cider is made like a wine. Uh, and to do it commercially, you have to have a winery permit. So we thought, well, to make fine in, in Wisconsin, no, in the U.S. So, so yes, in in Wisconsin and in the U.S. <laughs> yep, that's exactly. I, I always like to know that backstory of of how things are actually. As I've mentioned this in other interviews, you know, we we often talk about the ideas, but there's also those nuts and bolts behind it that are important. Right. Yes. Yes. Especially if it comes to an alcoholic product, there are lots of nuts and bolts. <laughs> so um, lots of uh, things you didn't even know to ask uh, when, when that you learn about as you get into an, an alcoholic product. Um, so since we learned that uh, right off the bat, the uh, cider making is basically a, a wine making process, we thought about, well, fine wines are made from wine grapes what would be the wine grapes of apples? So we learned that the English and French in particular developed varieties for the purposes of fermentation, if not even distillation. Uh, so we thought, well, um, we have to get some of these varieties, uh, some of which even have tannins, because like in a, a red wine grape, tannins can give mouthfeel, complexity, gives some real structure mm -hmm. to, to the fermented product. So we thought, well, let's grow those varieties because there's plenty of sweet tart apples here in the U.S. and right here in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So we, um, but we found out quickly that those kinds of apple varieties are, were not commercially available in the U.S., so we took a class on grafting, which is the horticultural process to make um, trees, uh, fruit trees and other things. And uh, we took the class from a man who actually had some of these tannic cider varieties in his own small orchard. So that gave us a start. It was a very slow start, you know, with our first grafting class being in 2003 and then um, learning how to grow apples. I don't come from a, a line of generations of apple growers. Um, and so uh, it was a um, learning on the job, you might say, sort of process of learning how to grow sure. these varieties. And I realized um, after a few years that I was like a data point of one in the U.S. growing these um varieties rare to the U.S. Uh, organically in our Midwest conditions. And, and that is uh, definitely a distinction to be proud of. And, you know, going literally from, uh, you know, grafting a seed to producing enough apples to, uh, and very specific apples to make a cider, you know, you said you started all the way back in 2002, 2003. Um, when did you start putting out your, your first bottles and how did you start, you know, distributing um, your cider? Did you start with, you know, uh, farmer's markets or tasting rooms or, you know, directly into uh, the retail space? Yes. Well, the first product we actually came out with uh, was not cider, but apple brandy. So, um, and we worked oh. with a local distillery. It was a second distillery to open in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, we contacted them in 2011. Uh, that's when we really got our sort of first, you might say, commercial level of, of, of apples. And um, we weren't really finding a local winemaker to work with um, in the region. Uh, we 
needed, you know, somebody who was a, a high quality winemaker, had an interest in cider and the uh, fermentation capacity to add cider. Um, mm-hmm. And that was challenging. So I had l- read about this new distillery that had opened and uh, contacted them and they were already making apple brandy for them and another orchard. So he was intrigued by these uh, apple varieties we had. So uh, we uh, started working with them to distill um, our cider, our, our cider to brandy. And in that, in the maturation process, cause we elected to age it for two years. And during that two year time, as we got to know the distillers, they said, we could, we could sell this out of here and not make us go through a distributor. And, um, mm. so, and those first couple releases just sold out in first one in less than two months and the next one, the next year it sold out in six weeks. So was it so uh, popular? Was it so popular because brandy is so popular in Wisconsin? Uh, did that make the brandy that much more attractive to the market? Because there is this, you know, longstanding love affair, at least, you know, the- theoretically between brandy and Wisconsin. Uh, it certainly helps. It certainly helps. And I think there's also this interest in uh, more locally produced products, fine uh, products, you know, high quality um, products and organic ones, because mm-hmm. uh, ours are made from organic apples. And over uh, over the years, we've gotten our distiller to also go organic in his processes for um, fruit brandies. So um, now we'll be able to call our apple brandy organic, um, not just made made with organic apples. Um, and so, yes, it, it helps that brandy is is so widely consumed in the state. I mean, Wisconsin, what when, when Corbell, which is kind of the um, a, you know a mass producer of just brandy, thirty six percent of their national production in the U.S. goes to Wisconsin. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of of the love of brandy. Um, uh, Wisconsin has. Now, I will say it's a lot of cheap brandy made from made from wine grapes. But um, anyway, yes, uh, it's certainly on, on people's mind. And and uh, the brandy old fashioned is, is the most popular drink in in Wisconsin. Yes. Yes, indeed. And we ha- I had a lovely conversation with someone else er- earlier in the season about just that, trying to introduce our listeners to the uh, the uniqueness of uh, the Wisconsin cocktail. Um, but I, I, this, this show is all about cider. So I, I'm curious to know, how did you make the shift then from this apple brandy, uh, ultimately into, you know, utilizing these very special variety, uh, apples in, into, uh, an organic cider? Yes. Well, we were fortunate that some people from Chicago bought a farm practically around the corner from us. And as we just got to know them, uh, in their first year here, uh, socially, um, we learned that uh, he's a restaurateur, and he and his partners have genuine farm-to-table restaurants in Chicago. They had, they had one at the time. We're looking at a second. And um, they are committed to buying craft products, including uh, for, their, for their bar, from uh, local, um, local producers. So he was very intrigued by the apples we have. And he said, I, I know of a winery in Illinois that does a good job. And what about if we have them make the cider there and then we sell it in our restaurants? And for us, it became like a beta test. Oh, great. We could see, well, how well does right. this winery even do making ciders? And then how well does it sell? So all that all went quite well. That was, I believe, 2015 or 16. And then we, uh, the next year, uh, uh, took more juice to this winemaker and then launched our own label. And we first just came out with, with kegged cider that could be served on tap. Um, and that's a challenging um, way to get into the marketplace because you don't have a bottled product that people mm-hmm. can see and sample. And so then we worked, uh, we, we bought a bottling line. And because um, bottling lines for, for a still wine that's not carbonated are different than what you need for a, a carbonated product. So, so mm-hmm. uh, that, that allowed us to also get into, get into bottles. 
And then mo- more recently, um, in 2018, we decided to open our own cidery and uh, retail operation or tasting room, we call it, in Madison, Wisconsin, just 45 mm-hmm. minutes from our farm. So, so that's allowed us to do more what you might say direct-to-consumer sales. And also we feature sure. a lot of other local and organic farms and all our food offerings there. And that that's important too. I, I do want to talk about how you uh, identify your um, your sourcing as well outside of the things that you specifically grow. But you know, do you look to um, Wisconsin specific ingredients, or, or do you uh, branch out into the region greater uh, in order to source some of the things that you serve, for example, or integrate into your um, products? Yeah. Well, well cider. I mean, the apples are, are mostly ours. Um, we do, since I focus on growing tannic apples, and um, over time, well, actually, when I started, um, I learned of a couple growers and who were hosting an organic apple field day and then said to them, oh, is there an association? Are there going to be more field days? Or, you know, how do I learn about growing apples organically? And they're like, well, we've been talking <laughs> right. about that. And I had a background in, in, startup non, in a startup nonprofit that I helped get going. And, uh, when I was, when we were living elsewhere and I said, so, um, well, you know, I could, I could help with that. So we started this association of, of, um, organic fruit growers. And through that process, I got to know a couple growers, uh, so that we could source some of the, the sweet table apples. And they also had the capacity to, to juice them. They, they make their own hard cider. So they kind of, I can work with them to get the, to get the qualities I want, um, in the apples that, that they produce that could go into our blends. So we use some of their, their apples in, um, in a couple of the ciders we produce. And then, um, we, uh, also were doing, uh, some, um, raising of hogs. We would just finish or feed out, uh, some hogs off the apples we, we don't use and everything that comes up off our apple press. But as the orchard grew, I was being advised to let's get somebody whose business is raising livestock to actually raise, uh, finish off these hogs for you. So, so now we work with that farm and they're, Certified organic, all pasture based, um, permaculture, and they are uh, raising whole and half hogs for us. And also, their beef and, and chicken we sell in our uh, tasting room as well. So, and then we work with another local farm who does excellent sausage making. Um, and then there's a lot of organic vegetable growers in the region. So, so um, you know, a mm-hmm. neighbor to us, we're able to use a lot of her product. So, so yeah, it's um, it's, it's very important to us. It just is part of who we are uh, to uh, source locally and uh, organically, or people who are using uh, very uh, regenerative processes on the landscape. So, um, cider is very food friendly. Um, it, it, it pairs with, with so many different, different kinds of foods. Um, and if I had to just limit it to one food category in the world, I would say cheese. Cheese would be my first, if I only had one go-to and we are in cheese Mecca. Uh, we have the highest concentration of master cheesemakers, you know, right here in South, Southwest and South Central Wisconsin. So, uh, featuring cheese and charcuterie boards in our tasting room is just um, just key. And we've done cider and cheese pairing classes, um, so we really do like to like to help people learn also how to enjoy cider, um, and also the many the many wonderful things that it that it pairs well with. There seems to be a theme here because we've heard about cider and cheese before, um, and and how prevalent that is. I think, uh, and at least it's a growing trend. Um, that, that seems to be picking up, um, and maybe one day actually even eclipsing the whole wine and cheese thing that everybody is so used to. Um, I want to go back to, to your tasting room and, and, um, so some of the things that you do that, um, you know, certainly pre COVID that, uh, might be considered, um, ways to attract tourism. I'm always interested in, in learning more about, you know, agritourism and culinary tourism. And, and it sounds like your tasting room and the region that you're in in Wisconsin, uh, as well as the, um, uh, the type of food that you serve, 
sounds like it's something that is going to attract people from from across the region. Is is that something that you're focused on, uh, bringing people out and and having them learn about uh, not only how the apples are grown, but how the cider is made and, and ultimately how to consume it best with things like cheese? Yes. So um, we do farm tours. So starting up in uh, with apple blossom time um, in late April, we'll be we'll be starting up our our farm tours. We were doing them monthly last year and bi-monthly, you know, twice a month when we got into fall where people could see the apple pressing. Uh, so, so we look forward to doing that again. We keep our, our group sizes uh, limited. And then also in our tasting room, we really like to feature Wisconsin. And we've had people, like we had a, a Japanese woman who uh, came in. She works with Toyota, and she literally changed her hotel from downtown Madison out to the west side where we are So, because she had seen us on the web. And she wanted to uh, be in a hotel. We have three hotels right next to our tasting room. And uh, she walked over, and before she left, she said, now I have tasted Wisconsin. <laughs> and um, I l- love it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so, so having people experience Wisconsin and finding partners to do that, we've we're part of what's called Destination Madison, so that uh, we're in their program that helps people uh, locate us, and we participate in the local like passport programs and and things that help uh, bingo cards where you go to all the local uh, wineries, breweries, distilleries. Um, so we do a lot of um, collaborative activities um, with business associations or other um, people kind of in the industry. We have a really collaborative atmosphere in, in Madison that we're, um, that we're happy to help encourage and participate in. I have spent some time in Wisconsin and, and uh, through this program, I've had a chance to speak to a lot of people from Wisconsin and the culinary space. And, and, and that sense and, and spirit of collaboration is consistent for, from everyone that I've met and everyone that I've spoken to. Great. I'm glad to hear that on your end. And then the other thing we do is that once people um, experience our ciders there, they want to know, well, how do I get them? And so we've started uh, working with a shipping program that allows us to have the ciders shipped to 33 states outside of Wisconsin. Um, And then uh, within Wisconsin, we work with a statewide distributor so that that distributor can get us into a lot of retail locations and, and restaurants and also with, uh, with another distributor in the Chicago area. So that's how, and then we listed on our website, you know, where to buy and how to, um, how to have our ciders shipped as well. Great. Well, you, you have uh, started to answer my, my final question. If somebody wanted to taste Wisconsin and get their hands on, on your cider and, and your brandy and anything else that, that you're selling, where could our listeners find that, um, you know, outside of traveling to Madison, which maybe people are not doing right now due to COVID, but how can they find you on the web and, and, and get your goods shipped to them? Yes, our website is www.thesiderfarm.com. So it's The Cider Farm. And uh, where to buy would be the best page to go to. Um, so our, our, as I mentioned, the ciders can be, can be shipped to 33 states outside of Wisconsin. Then we also list where you can buy within Wisconsin and the Chicago area. Uh, One thing about distilled spirits is that those are challenging to ship uh, because the law requires that the person buy them physically there. Um, And then the the, the distiller has to have a a contract with um, UPS or or FedEx to actually move them. So um, we do uh, have a distiller's permit now. And so we will be working on possibly doing that um, sometime in, in 2021 to see if we can get into a shipping program because we get a lot of requests for people who want to uh, ship our apple brandy. And especially now that it's, it's um, during the holiday times, um, that's a popular request as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I really thank you for, for sharing your story, your journey, um, and uh, certainly introducing our listeners to your product and, and where they can find it. We really appreciate you being on Eat Your Heartland out today. Stick around for more about cider on Eat Your Heartland Out after this quick break.
I'm Lisa Held, a food and agriculture journalist and the host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I know it's difficult to find reliable information on where your food comes from and how that relates to the issues you care about, like the climate crisis, racial justice, and health. With Peeled, my new Substack newsletter, I'm going to make it easier for you. At Peeled, we'll pull back every story's shiny outer layer and go straight to the core. Each week, I'll send you an email with original reporting and expert analysis. I'll make it interesting, I promise. And together, we'll get better at making delicious, healthy choices that align with our values. Subscribe at peeled.substack.com. Our final guest this hour is Walker Fanning, cider maker at the Hidden Cave Cidery in Wisconsin. Walker, thanks so much for joining the show today. We really are happy to have you here. Um, and I, I'm so glad that you, you've you uh, been willing to take the time because um, I understand that you actually started out pretty young uh, in the in the industry of cider. And I'm also pretty sure you're not even 30 yet. So how'd you get into the cider industry so young? I started in the industry when I was 22 years old. I... Um, was an agronomy major at UW-Madison. I have lived in Wisconsin since the third grade, went to Middleton High School, UW-Madison, got my degree in agronomy. And then after college, I really wanted a job in the agricultural industry, but I wanted to do more of uh, like fruit fruit crops. And I was interested in winemaking, and uh, I'd never made hard cider or wine or beer before, but I thought it was an interesting idea to be able to grow something that you then turn into like a value-added product. And uh, I was looking all summer for a job, wasn't finding anything, uh, thought I was going to have to move back in with my parents. And then right at that last week of the summer, uh, after my senior year of college, I got a job offer from a little Uh, apple orchard in the South Madison area where they were growing apples and um, making hard cider with it and uh, went out there just asking if I could volunteer on the farm because I was just looking for something to do and uh, when I got there he offered me the orchard manager position Uh, when I started uh, doing that you know it was already mid to late uh, September so there wasn't a whole lot of orchard management to do Uh, I was really just picking apples but I noticed that they had a lot of hard cider that they, you know, that was the whole point of the antique orchard, growing all these special varieties of apples was for their hard cider. But um, they had a basement full of hard cider. And I was like, you know, there's not a lot of orchard management to do right now. Could I help sell your hard cider? And they said, sure. And I went around the Madison area and I helped them go from uh, two liquor store locations to over 30 different bars and restaurants in the Madison area. And I, um, I was then, they were having a little bit of issues with production. So I stepped in there and started helping them make the hard cider. I, like I said, I'd never done it before. I just sat down, pinned to paper on a Monday night and wrote down everything I could about hard cider production. And then that next day I came in with a plan and, uh, we started doing it that way and we got really good results. And, uh, after a while I was, uh, managing the orchard, I was selling the hard cider, I was making it. Uh, they asked me to start doing their taxes, and that's when I thought maybe I should start my <laughs> own cider business. Yeah, well, that that really takes uh, you know the term one man band to a whole new level. I mean, it, you're doing literally every job, and I mean, kudos to you for for stepping up and and having that you know determination and ingenuity and and being able to. Um, you know, see, I think, opportunities that maybe, um, you know, the folks that were already established didn't maybe have that fresh eye. Um, And so, you know, but it did give you this opportunity to almost learn every aspect of the business from, you know, farm to bottle, so to speak. Um, Forget the taxes part. I mean, you you know, there's turbo tax for that (laughs) in H&R Block, right? Um, But so, you know, you were doing all of this for somebody else's business. And, um, is that what made you strike out on your own? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, after a while, I was, uh, w- you know, once I was just kind of juggling all those responsibilities, it just kind of became like, you know, if I could do that, I could, I have all the tools to do this on my own. 
uh, and start my own thing. And uh, I have an agricultural background, so I understand uh, the science there. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, you'd think like taxes, oh, whatever, you could do it on TurboTax. But the way that the government um, like decides what your product is, whether it's a hard cider, special natural wine, you know, a hard cider over 8% is technically a wine. If you fruit it, it's technically a wine. And that all affects the uh, tax dollars that you pay per gallon. Uh, but there's actually, they have a little piece in there that says you can't flavor your hard cider uh, with um, any fruit flavors or else it becomes a special natural wine and your taxes go up. And so, but they did say you can add herbs to the cider, as long as you're not trying to impart a fruit flavor and you're still in the hard cider tax class, which gets taxed at a much lower rate. <laughs> so all of the ciders that I make, hibiscus juniper, rosehip rosemary, lemongrass lavender, chocolate hazelnut, uh, none of these are actual fruit uh, ciders. So it kind of, I was trying to work within the system uh, to to be innovative and because I'm doing that, it led to a lot of types of ciders that nobody else was making because, um, you know, I just looking at the, the tax laws. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is like my favorite thing that I've heard thus far, just because I, I you know, I have a government background. Uh, I spent, you know, 12 years uh, in, in politics, 10 years in state government, uh, and I served on the Ways and Means Committee so and the Agriculture Committee, uh, which so that my government is actually my background. And so what has been really fun as we, at least for me, the policy wonk, is in talking to all these wonderful entrepreneurs and growers and makers uh, is also the kind of behind the music, behind the curtain of, of all these policy issues um, that are are pervasive when you're dealing particularly with an alcoholic product of any form. So any kind of value-added product, whether, you know, we've talked to folks that make wine-based jelly and and yourself. I mean, the fact that, you know, from basically necessity came, you know, ingenuity and opportunity for something that, you know, maybe you wouldn't have gone the route of, of uh, urban-fused cider um, really just shows how uh, multifaceted, um, being an entrepreneur, particularly in the culinary uh, and uh, kind of alcohol and agriculture space, it really is. Um, I'm so glad that you brought up, um, you know, the the unique products that you make. Um, and I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your process of, you know, we obviously now know a little bit about the fact that you kind of fell onto herbs, at least partially because of the, the you know, tax implications. But, um, you know, how did you decide that herbs would be something that could be um, a good match with the flavor profile of cider? Uh, and walk us through that kind of, um, I guess, trial and error uh, and experimental process that you go through to identify those flavors. Well, when I was living downtown, I saw in the little local mail that there was a foraging dash herbal um, class learning about herbal medicines and things that you can forage for in Wisconsin uh, with Moonwine, Moonwise Herbs, uh, which is owned by and operated by Linda Conroy. And she was teaching the class over at Obrick Gardens. And um, so I was interested a little bit in doing this herb infused cider. And then I took her class and it was just kind of mind-blowing to see all the different things that you can do with obscure uh, ingredients. And that was actually where I had rose hips for the first time. And rose hip rosemary was my first uh, hard cider creation. And she made a, she made a rose wow. hip tea. Uh, she made high bush cranberry juice, which is a type of cranberry and this juice just tasted like the most perfect like cranberry cocktail, but there was no sugar added to it, which was amazing. And then we had pickled burdock and uh, some tinctures that were really old. Wow. We took grapes and smashed them up and put them in honey, and uh, the honey preserves the grapes, and, and then you can spread it on toast or whatever later. So it was just kind of like all of these kind of crazy, uh, fun things that you can do with ingredients you wouldn't really think of ever using or in some cases like burdock root um it's really kind of like a pest that oh maybe i could use this plant instead of just throwing it in the compost pile um and so 
that really got me looking towards uh, wanting to experiment more. And now when I kind of chase down a flavor, um, for instance, lemongrass lavender, I was getting uh, food at Madison Sourdough downtown and my friend ordered a lavender lemonade and they let me have some and I was like, wow, this is a really good flavor combination. So I went back to the cidery and <laughs> I reached into my bag of herbs and I had bought a lot because I was experimenting and I picked out lemongrass and I found lavender in the bag. And I'm like, I think I can make a really good like lemongrass, lavender, hard cider with some honey in it, just like they have at Madison Sourdough, but a cider version. And uh, I went and did that and uh, it was really delicious. It's our highest rated cider online. And really when I get some new inspiration, um, like for instance, a cider I was going to release last spring that... Um, a cider that I was going to release last spring was elderflower holy basil. Um, and I really had wow. no idea what these would taste like. And so I called up uh, Linda Conroy and from Moonwise Herbs. And uh, she picked up the phone and kind of talked to me about using all these different herbs. And the same is true when I did hibiscus juniper. Uh, she said, you know, really get to really get those juniper flavors. You got to crush them or put them in a blender just so you really can release that flavor and with all the herbs you know i'm slapping them before i steep them in the cider um and then other things like with the rose hips you don't just hang you don't just put rose hips in cider and let it sit you take them and boil them in cider and create kind of like this juice paste that i like press almost just like pressing apples and then i take that tart rose hip juice and put that in the cider and then infuse it with like a handful of rosemary per 260 gallons. So just all the little things that you might not even realize because something is so foreign to you as an ingredient. Um, and just in the way that uh, she's gracious enough to pass along the information to me about this stuff, uh, when in turn, when somebody comes to me, I had Kyle uh, Metz from Funk Factory call me last month and he said, he wanted to make a sour beer with rose hips and he had some questions for me. And so I kind of walked him through my process because it's just more fun to share and to have and to collaborate within your community and uh, really help each other build on on what other people have already figured out and uh, sharing and then just expanding all the, you know, the beverage market in general. There's no question that that kind of mentor and mentee relationship um, is you know wildly beneficial uh, to everybody involved, and, and I, I'm hearing this time and time again as I'm talking to so many folks like yourself, uh, as as I just as an interviewer and and the host of this program, I'm, I'm learning more and more about you know these different aspects of these value added products, and what I'm hearing is is almost this midwestern value coming through as as the show is about the you know the intersection of food and culture in in the American Midwest, of that sense of community that. Uh, that sense of collaboration and and that really has been an emerging theme and so it's wonderful that you have um, that kind of community uh, collaboration and, and mentorship and it also sounds like you um, are committed to utilizing you know local resources and local ingredients where do you get your herbs from I'm, where I mean is are they all from you know regionally around Madison uh, Wisconsin in general do you ship any in? Yeah, so the herbs, I just, I buy the herbs dried because I find that that is the best way in terms of just keeping stuff uh, from spoiling and having things available to you when you need it or things to experiment with. Um, just to have dry herbs, then it's just less, you know, spoiling on you and all that. You just got your bag of herbs and you're set there. Uh, with the uh, cider, like the cider base, all of my apples come from Wisconsin, and that was really important to me because I went to school for agriculture at UW-Madison, and I actually continued to be a farmer over in Fitchburg at uh, Apple Garden. I'm the orchard manager there, and I run my cider business downtown, and then um, all the honey that I use comes from Gentle Breeze in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, and by sourcing products locally instead of um, going to bigger markets where say I could get it for cheaper like I could have uh, juice shipped out from New York and with the shipping 
I'd still be paying basically as much as I'd be paying for juice uh, here in Wisconsin. So that just goes to show you, and that's getting it as juice, not even as concentrate. If you're getting it at concentrate, you know, you can get that for so cheap. Um, but that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. That's not what it's about. Being a, a local producer is about supporting uh, your farmers and helping them build out their industry. And I, I want a young or an older apple farmer to say, I want to continue doing this. And I know that Walker Fanning is going to come and he's going to buy my apples this year or he's going to buy my honey again this year and just to help them grow. And then as an industry, as a state, uh, everything slowly becomes improved. And, you know, we're sitting between two huge apple producing states, Minnesota and Michigan, and we're a little bit behind Michigan. them on our apple industry in terms of um, just building it out and, and um, making use of all of our resources. So our farmers do a great job here, and I, and I want to see more of them, and I want to see more uh, people getting into the apple industry because it's a lot of fun making hard cider or growing apples or running a U-Pick apple farm. It's all... Um, it's all great, and I want to see more of it. <laughs> well, we need more Walker Fannings, that's for sure, because, uh, you know, with, with your level of, of, you know, growing expertise and, and enthusiasm and commitment, uh, you know, you're definitely going to be part of the next generation, you know, already growing uh, that Apple industry and, and all of those value-added products. You know, what's next for you? I mean, uh, you know, how— uh, you've told us a little, you've told us about the ingredients, the process, the different things that you're producing. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you work, my understanding is you work with a, um, a local distillery to help the process and you don't have that yet on your own. Is that something that you are looking to do? Um, you know, open up your own operation, um, flying solo in the future? Yeah. I signed a lease on my own cider business, uh, my own brick and mortar, I should say. And uh, I'm planning to open this spring, March, April, May, somewhere in there. And yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We got a cool vibe that we're going to do in there. That's exciting. What? So you have this new brick and mortar that's going to be opening up uh, spring 2021. What is? What can somebody expect if they're going to visit it? And what's, what's the name of this place going to be called? Well, so it's Hidden Cave Cidery. It's on Pleasant View Road. And right before in Madison, it's a uh, Middleton. It's in Middleton. Middleton Industrial Park, um, right by Capital Ice Skating Arena. And what people can expect is a lot of fun. There'll be like a little bit of food stuff, like um, you know, meat and cheese board, uh, all that Fort Fromage, some fun stuff. We're gonna do uh, lots of different styles of cider and a lot of different uh, flavors of cider and. You know, now having my own tank space and my own production facility means a lot more uh, small batch releases to keep everything uh, just really uh, exciting. So uh, right now I do lemongrass lavender, rosehip rosemary, hibiscus juniper. I made chocolate hazelnut last year. I have elderflower holy basil. I just released a rum barrel um, hibiscus juniper. I have a smoked whiskey maple syrup barrel lemongrass lavender that's going to come out in the next couple of Whoa. months um yep talk and, about a complex palette that is yeah and i'm gonna make a peanut butter and honey hard cider i'm working on a um honeysuckle french toast hard cider Ooh. um so just a lot of fun stuff a lot of out of the box stuff and seasonal even, are you going to be doing these seasonal releases Seasonal releases, and I, I, you know, I like to keep some year-round stuff. Um, but uh, really, kind of what I'm working on, and what I started last year was um, bringing in those like dark beer flavors into the hard cider industry. So, like right now, we're seeing a lot of fruit forward. Uh, even my like when you talk about lemongrass, lavender, or hibiscus, juniper that lemongrass or that hibiscus really gives it a fruitiness. Um, right, a bit of a citrusy. Right, where then you can kind of get into when when you talk about chocolate hazelnut, that's just a completely different um, uh, like flavor profile. Hits your palate much differently. And uh, the thing that's really nice for people, I think, when they drink these, is they 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 see these aren't sugar bombs. These are 
really nicely flavored um, uh, on the drier side, even even the ones that people are gonna think are sweet, like my uh, salted caramel that I did a couple years ago. And um, so kind of bring in that, you know, peanut butter and honey, that's another kind of dark beer style. And so those are gonna be kind of more of my winter releases. Then when we mm-hmm. come into summer, I wanna do more of single varietal blend, like a Jonathan apple single varietal, which mm-hmm. would be packed with flavor. A keeved cider, um, it's, it's a fermented in a special way, really slow. Um, just all sorts of really fun stuff and unique stuff and stuff that uh, will only be available at Hidden Cave Cidery because I'm the only person that's going to make it. <laughs> well, you you are the man. I, I really am going to have to make a special trip out to Wisconsin. Twist my arm. I love Wisconsin, and I think our, my listeners know this because I'm always talking about it. And I'm from Ohio. I love me. I love my my home state, but I. Wisconsin is 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 a very close second um, for so many reasons. Just wonderful food, wonderful people, um, and if we can't make the the trip out, at least you know, or we have to wait until it's open. Um, is there a way to get this uh, unique cider shipped out across the country, or are we going to have to you know do a road trip? Yeah, for now it's definitely a road trip situation. Um, but in the future, uh, what's nice about Wisconsin is they allow you to get your direct wine shipper permit. Uh, so once I have my own place, it's your cidery is technically a winery. So I'll be able to start, uh, shipping all across Wisconsin and hopefully into other States as well. Um, so that's probably would be coming next summer, uh, for that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Walker, tell, tell our listeners before uh, I let you go, what's your website so people can learn more about you, uh, and, and your, uh, very, very, uh, I think, uh, innovative cider operation. Uh, yeah, my website is hiddencavecider.com. You can check out uh, all the different food recipes that I've made with hard cider. Uh, we even have a fried cheese curd recipe, very Wisconsin uh, oh, wow. type of recipe. And we also have uh, hard cider cocktail recipes, a whole bunch of those. We release videos my story's on there. And if you're ever drinking a bottle of Hidden Cave, on the bottom of the bottle is a date code that corresponds to a date on our website. And that shows you what apples are in that bottle that you have, uh, that you're drinking. How special. That really does make it a very interactive experience for the consumer uh, and, and you know, really brings you right there, understanding people. I really, I think, want to know where their food comes from this, these days. And, and when it's this kind of high quality and complex product, that's uh, just really great that, that you're able to provide that information uh, to, to folks that are drinking uh, your your cider. So thank you again, Walker, for, for joining the program. And uh, let me tell you, as soon as I'm able to, you know, fill up my car, it was, I'm, I'm heading out to Wisconsin because, uh, you know, cheese curds and cider are two of my favorite things. So, um, and I got to try some of these unique, uh, you know, uh, the one that involves French toast, I, I think, save some of that for me. I will do. <laughs> Thanks again for being on the program. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.